Welcome to In Conversation with Our Food Future, a podcast that's following the creation of a circular food economy here in Guelph, Wellington. I'm Barb Schwartzentuber, founding executive director of the Smart Cities office and host of this series. On today's episode, we will be discussing carbon credits and how the average Guelph Wellington citizen interacts or could interact with the carbon market of the future. The Kyoto Protocol of 1997 and the Paris Agreement of 2015 were international accords that laid out global CO2 emission reduction goals. With the later ratified by all but six countries, they have given rise to national emission targets and the regulations necessary to back them. With these new regulations in force, the pressure on businesses to find ways to reduce their carbon footprint is growing. Most of today's interim solutions involve the use of carbon markets. While we hear a lot about carbon markets, credits, offsets, the average person still wonders What are they? How are they currently working? And what do they intend to do in the future? Snack Bites is a new segment of the show aimed at demystifying some of the big grand concepts of systems change and circular economy. In this debut segment, we welcome guest host, high school student Haley Keating, who interviews David Messer, our new executive director, on the topic of carbon markets. It's Carbon Markets 101. Have a listen. I'm Haley Keating, your guest host for this segment, here to chat with Dave Messer. Um, To start off, what are carbon offsets? Well, every person or business, um, as they operate, generates carbon emissions, whether it's, you know, driving your car or um, the way a farm operates on the land or the way, um, you know, a a business heats a warehouse. Everyone generates a carbon emission. carbon emissions. And in the current uh, world right now, we don't ha- necessarily have technologies to remove all of these. A lot of the the carbon uh, that's produced is unavoidable. So to try and uh, reduce emissions in places where it can't be reduced, um, people have come up with the, the concept of carbon offsets, meaning you are effectively um, offsetting your own carbon emissions by purchasing um, activities or paying for activities done somewhere else in the world or by some other business or organization or community that are capturing carbon. So it it offers an opportunity for businesses that can't reduce their carbon footprint to pay other people to reduce their carbon footprints for them, which is great because it moves funding from organizations or or situations where it's it's polluting to places where it's creating more sustainable growth and more sustainable uh, business opportunities or or community building opportunities. And so this can happen at at the individual level. So if you go and, for instance, purchase uh, a plane ticket right now with Air Canada, you can pay, you know, sometimes an extra $10 or $20 to offset the emissions of your flight. Um, If you purchase anything using the Shop app through Shopify, they automatically offset emissions from transportation by, you know, funding uh, tree planting organizations around the world with some of the profits, which effectively make purchases through that platform supposedly um, carbon neutral. So there's all these different ways people can do this individually, but then corporations can also uh, go about this as well. What are carbon credits? 
So if carbon offsets are kind of, you know, like a one-off thing that are voluntary for consumers, carbon credits are more of a, a packaged product that can be purchased mostly by companies or larger organizations um, to offset um, emissions at, at a, a bit of a broader scale. So if you are um, a business or an organization that is doing um, doing different things to capture carbon in a way that is, um, it has to be additional. So not just, not just emissions that would be captured kind of anyways in, in the day-to-day -day world um, and in a way that is, is permanent. So, you know, actually capturing carbon in a way that won't be just released um, a short time later, then you can work with a, a verification body and get that practice verified to prove that yes, in fact, this is additional emissions you're capturing and uh, it's capturing those emissions permanently. And then you can package it into this product called a carbon credit, which then you can sell. And uh, there's a few different types of, of carbon credits. There's voluntary carbon credits um, and there's regulated credits. But the whole idea is that it, it lets businesses um, that don't have the ability to uh, reduce their own emissions right now using current technologies, there's, it's unavoidable, um, to actually pay you for what you're doing um, at, by purchasing these credits from you at a one ton for one ton uh, ratio. Um, and then similar to climate change, there are people that are saying this is like a scam and a hoax. And although I don't believe that's true, I think people just want a debate and they want a discussion about the carbon credits. I think you're looking at about in places in the world, they're like 10, uh, five to $10 in that range for a carbon credit. But um, in order to make it sustainable and to make a difference, how expensive do you think they should get? Well, I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's a good question. And I think um, one of the big things right now is that it's a bit of a wild west for carbon credits. Well, first, let's talk about the different types of markets, though. There's two types of carbon markets. There's the voluntary market, um, where companies can choose um, out of out of goodwill, out of you know uh, shareholder or customer pressure to offset their own emissions by buying these credits, and that's totally of their own volition. Um, then there's the regulate, regulated market, and this is um, a cap and trade system similar to what Ontario had at one point um, before 2018, and it currently California has and Quebec has, um, and that's more of a regulated cap and trade system. So uh, in a regulated market, there's very stringent rules around what constitutes um, a carbon credit and how those can be sold um, within this, this regulated market of, of carbon credits under a cap and trade system. In the voluntary market, uh, where you don't have that government oversight, it's a bit of a wild west. Um, there's an, any number of different regulatory bodies that um, you know verify carbon credits, some to a higher standard, some potentially to a lower standard. And that causes a lot of confusion and a lot of different, um, different pricings that are out there because every carbon credit isn't necessarily uh, equal to every other carbon credit. Um, but they all go basically around the same, the same uh, principle, though, that you're looking for additional carbon that's being captured and being captured in a permanent way. Is this way of getting carbon into the ground and making it stay there, 
Is it allowing larger companies to get off with the amount of carbon they're producing? Because when they have more, if they're a larger company, they have more money. And it's basically the same concept of like the rich can do what they want because they can afford to pay for the carbon credits while the others cannot. Yeah. And I think this is getting directly back to what you said before about what should the price of a carbon credit be? Because right now, the cost of a carbon credit, even in regulated markets, is is much too low to really force that market change. The whole idea with a regulated cap and trade sort of system is that um, you're creating um, both kind of a carrot and a stick incentive um, to encourage businesses to innovate and bring on new technology to reduce their emissions, so that you know they can take the they can generate carbon credits and, and use their own uh, their own carbon credits effectively to make more money. And uh, then also, you know, prevent the losses from their own cap. But what you see in a lot of markets is that penalties for not hitting your emission targets are about the same as buying credits. So it's not at this point really creating the incentive to force people to change. Um, I think that's, you know, changing quite a bit. The the price of carbon has been rising. Um and so, and there's increasing shareholder and uh, and consumer pressure uh, around this. Um, but to your point, you know, at this point, it's still it's still a mechanism that is a little bit in development and is uh, often does you know let some some organizations get away with being um, net zero uh, on emissions meaning that, you know, they continue business as usual and then they give potentially, you know, not that huge amount of money to carbon offsets um, to uh, to compensate for their own emissions. And while that is better than nothing, it's absolutely better than nothing, it's not necessarily at the point where it's driving behavior change, which is ultimately what the goal of this whole thing should be. Do you know how long this has been um, going on? The city of Guelph has been um, operating in the carbon market since uh, 2011 or 2012, and where the city generates carbon credits by capturing methane from the old Eastview landfill site, as well as through the organics uh, waste processing facility, where uh, waste is is composted, and and you know methane emissions are are avoided through that, and so and that's been that's been happening you know for for a decade or so now, and those credits then get sold on on the private on the um, voluntary market, but. You know, certainly in terms of um, regulated markets, those are starting to pick up much more momentum. And certainly in terms of consumers and uh, corporate shareholders, there's much, much more pressure now, I think, for companies to go uh, net zero. And has there been a lot of development in terms of penalties for the carbon and just the overall overgoing the admission? And because you said the penalties is about equal to the price of a carbon credit. So has there been any progress or are you looking for there to be more progress in the future? Well, I mean, it, it depends on the jurisdiction. Um, generally, the answer is no, because everyone is kind of starting now with the idea that it'll ramp up. I mean, across Canada or in Ontario, at least right now, we have a, a carbon tax system, right, which starts at quite a low level and with the idea that it'll increase over time, which will encourage businesses to reduce emissions, which is a um, much simpler system, arguably, than uh, cap and trade or using carbon credits where you need to you know, 
verify where they go. In terms of penalties, I think those are also ramping up over time, but it's it's tricky because the whole world kind of has to go at the same time to avoid, you know, doing business in Europe, for instance, being totally unaffordable compared to doing business anywhere outside of Europe where they're not uh, regulating carbon. Yeah, so the if farmers, for example, they may be moving their carbon emissions to somewhere else that it's less expensive in penalties. And so they don't have to pay as much, but they're still putting the same amount out. Yeah. Well, and actually farms are a really interesting case where there's a lot of potential for, for farms to um, actually capture carbon and, and generate revenue from the carbon market. Um, but that's something that we're just in the early stages of developing. Um, in the United States, there's a platform called Indigo Ag, where farmers can effectively sign up and and effectively farm carbon. So they implement particular practices on their farm fields, relatively simple things, often like cover cropping or um, reducing pressure on tractor tires or practicing no-till farming, all these sorts of things that you know disturb the soil, which you know is a is a bit of a carbon sink, right? And so uh by changing these practices and using different platforms, um, farms are able to then uh, actually get revenue for this. And, and <clears throat> this is a really exciting area when you think about promoting and supporting regenerative agriculture, <clears throat> because it means farmers will get a new source of revenue for doing these practices that um, uh, you know in, in give them new costs, um, but they'll also be recognized for doing those practices that are good for capturing carbon and and keeping the, the health of the soil. I think the other piece that we're investigating is how can uh, we de- design a new system that actually works for the farmers based on their farm use case? So it's every farm is different. Every crop is different. There's differences in geography and business model. Um, and we're really at an early stage of understanding the relationships between you know crops and soil and animals and all these different facets that can impact uh, how soil, how carbon is captured in the soil. So we're, we need to develop new systems that actually, you know, let farmers pick the solutions that work for them, that actually improve the health of their soil and the sustainability of their own farm, um, while also capturing carbon and uh, g- potentially generating carbon uh, offsets through the process. It's, it's a complicated, uh, you know, process because not one size, you know, it's not a one size fits all solution. Um, and, and so there's, there's lots of work to be done and we're really, you know, kind of still at an early stage for some of this stuff. Why is this important to Guelph and Wellington and how do you see the average citizen interacting with this market? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Guelph, the city of Guelph generates, um, a, a couple hundred thousand dollars annually from the work we're doing just as a city to capture our own um, carbon uh, emissions. So from the Eastview, uh, former Eastview uh, dump site where we're capturing methane and from the organics processing s- facility, we are actually capturing all of these emissions that would have you know, gone into the atmosphere otherwise and turning those into carbon credits that are sold on the market and that bring revenue back into our community. And uh, through council, those uh, all the revenues raised from that process have to get put back into new projects that um, help reduce emissions within the city of Guelph. So that's a way that you know everyone in in this city is participating. You know, when you use your green card at your house and uh, send your organics 
through that as opposed to landfill, down the line, that's generating uh, carbon credits, which generates revenue that come into our community to do even more to reduce emissions. And so that's a that's a really exciting way that you know everyone can do it just by using your green cart. Um, beyond that, through our food future, we're actually working with a company right now called Pack Solutions that's piloting a bit of a regional carbon offset system. So if you imagine uh, you, know, you have an app on your phone and you take actions either you know, reducing the heat in your house or walking or biking as opposed to uh, driving, we're developing a, a, or piloting a system where you can actually generate local carbon credits through that that you could then use to get potentially a discount at a local business. And so it's, it's you know, looking at how do you create a bit of a micro carbon credit, carbon market to create more change at the individual level. So that's a really exciting pilot that um, we're, we're in the alpha stage right now, and hopefully there'll be some beta testing um, with the broader community um, in spring. And then beyond that, I mean, I think most uh, most people can just look for ways in their own lives to uh, to find ways to offset. At the start of the conversation, you mentioned how you know typically you can offset um, your plane ride uh, if you're um, flying, but the real point of this is the whole idea is to reduce emissions, right? So, getting credits is great, but if you can avoid the flight or you know take the train or use public transit or something else that's honestly probably better for the world than taking the flight and buying the offsets um so you know it's it's a market that exists but it's a means to an end and the end is reducing carbon emissions so that's kind of where the the focus should try and be perfect well thank you very much for joining me thank you so much uh haley for for doing this with us really appreciate it Thanks again to Haley Keating and David Messer for guiding us through the concepts of carbon markets, offsets, and credits. We hope this conversation just whet your appetite because my next guest has a deep history of important environmental work, most recently in carbon markets and regenerative agriculture. I'm delighted to welcome Alden Donnelly, co-founder and director of Carbon Economics for NORI. So let's pull our chairs around the kitchen table and get the conversation started. Welcome, Alden. How are you? I'm good. And thanks for coming and talking about um, what I would say is an interesting and, and fraught topic, mm-hmm. carbon markets. You've, you've got a very broad and interesting background. Uh, as I said in the introduction, you're co-founder and director of Carbon Economics, which is based in Seattle. And Nori is a blockchain-based startup with a mission to create a transparent, credible, and easy-to-use carbon removal marketplace. Your work really brings together disruptive technology, finance innovation, climate risk mitigation, and much more. And you're really a pioneer in these fields in many ways. Um, I really want to get into talking uh, more about carbon markets and carbon credits. And we're you know, we're in our project, uh, which is to create circular food system within um, Guelph and Wellington County and, and kind of prove out what that could look like, um, you know, nationally and internationally. We've been thinking about how food systems can have a positive regenerative impact on the environment and address climate impacts. And I'm really interested 
in your thoughts about, you know, what collectively have we as a society learned about whether carbon markets or carbon credits, you know, how they can work, what can they achieve that maybe other climate policies can't? It's a good news and a bad news story. I'll I'll start with the bad news. I would argue none of the climate policies that I see implemented, which if you, you know, if you go by um, World Bank and and UNFCC, total 65 or more different approaches to carbon pricing and regulation around the world, I would argue none of them are working. Um, I would also, and this is, I guess, where I'm controversial, I would argue they don't work because they can't be made to work, not because anybody's ill-intended or not committed or not trying. I think we've picked the wrong approach or model and now are doing everything within our power to make it work. And the reason we failed for 30 years is because it can't be made to work. And I'm not speaking about just other people. I spent 22 years trying to make it work before I looked up and said, wait a second, is there a different way? And for those who one or two people who might be listening to this who are policy wonks. If you look at our global history of great pollution reduction success stories, the model I call the Montreal Protocol model model, is structurally very different from the, uh, the UNFCC model for greenhouse gases, which is which is designed over off um, what we call the acid rain SO2 allowance trading and, and carbon pricing model. The Montreal protocol model works and the acid rain protocol model doesn't work, didn't work, can't be made to work. So we have to get everybody to step back and say, and realize we actually know how to do this. Why don't we do it the way that works? That has worked for us every time we've tried to do this. So you're saying we've been doubling and tripling down on an approach that we just can't make to work, but that we do know one that could work. Can you, can you for lay people out there, talk about the difference? Like what, what do you think? It's, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's straightforward and it really fits into your goal, the circular economy for food and it's counterintuitive. So after I spent years trying to make when we're the model everybody's trying to make work is one where we go to facilities and sources that if not the mm-hmm. end use where you burn the carbon to create the greenhouse gas that is we're releasing to the atmosphere if we can't get quite that far we go to the gas pump and we think government has to tax it put a price on it or government has to create permits to emit sell them and have a declining supply. And all of the focus is on that point where the emission, the discharge takes place. Um, I, I, I won't go into it if you don't, until unless you take me there. That system can't be made to work for many, many reasons. There are three critical problems. In a market that works that way, the last big oil producer out is the big financial winner. If we're getting the system right, the first out and into renewable energy is the big winner. The problem with this way is government setting prices and picking mm. solutions. The other thing, not, not motivating the market to do the only thing the market can do well is tell them what the performance requirement is and then go compete to achieve it. 
And the third really big problem with that way of doing things is you can't make a domestic set of rules that where government sets prices and allocates rights to emit work for a trading economy without adding in new tariffs and not just pricing what happened, government setting prices internally, but taking us down a path to probably an historically unprecedented era of trade wars and and, and tariffs. None of those conditions applied when we decided to reduce our discharges of ozone depleting substances and stop building the hole in the ozone layer because, and I'm not, I have to watch out here because I have a tendency to use potty language, bad mouth, and I no will try not to. on this podcast. <laughs> when, when, when we were, um, when we were serious about curtailing our, our creation of the hole in the low yeah. ozone layer, the goal was to reduce emissions. But we didn't write any, the regulations that drove our success and we yes, have been successful yeah. were not regulations or measures to reduce emissions. We said to everybody who makes refrigerant chemicals or sell, and sells equipment that rely on the use of refrigerant chemicals, report and reduce the ozone depleting substance or what was known as the pollution precursor in your supply chain. So the, the obligated parties were suppliers, not emitters. And the thing we controlled was the content in the supply chain, so the so virgin carbon, if we're doing greenhouse gases, not the emissions. That's also how we got the lead out of gasoline and sulfur levels down. And every time we've been serious about reducing an emission, we controlled that pollution precursor content in the supply chain and there was a credit market, and the credit market was entirely developed and operated and administered by the private sector. Government didn't sell any rights to pollute. Well, let's think through what 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 would that look like in the food system? So, so in the food system, um, you would say to the suppliers, the major, that last supplier before the food hits the shelf, so that's uh, less than 100 companies instead of 6,000 yeah. companies. You track, I'm saying, I, there's got to be a better term. You'll come up with it. For now, I'm calling it the virgin carbon yeah. content in your supply chain. So the virgin the virgin carbon content in the, 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 the thing you're passing through down the supply chain plus any carbon losses to the atmosphere. I'm not even saying, don't worry about whether they go up as CO2 or CH4. It's virgin carbon that's been right. extracted yep. that whether it's extracted through um agriculture you know or you trace it you report it it's got to go down three percent per annum any combination of use food suppliers can comply jointly which and if you over comply with the reduction schedule um uh you can bank credits for a while. That spawns a whole carbon credit market that's very efficient, very vibrant. What's the key? We didn't set a price. We didn't tell them what to do. Um, and it's way easier if you ask your supply chain to start just adding the virgin fo- fossil carbon content and loss to the bottom of every invoice going down the supply chain, just as if it was GST. That's all the uh, many of the complications we built into 
the current you know approach to carbon markets just go away and and to some extent i think that's happening like you've got some of the big companies like general mills in the states and you know um uh even maple leaf foods in our area committing to be neutral or net zero and trying to work with their supply chain um in order to make that happen but the the credit side of that market is still you're suggesting that it it should be still a privately organized kind of approach and so i i i see that uh, you you talked about um you started to talk a little bit about nature based solutions and you said um food and fiber and there's quite a lot of focus on those solutions as a way of taking urgent kind of climate action. And in our work, we're thinking about regenerative agriculture as a way of caring for our soil and addressing biodiversity loss. What are the issues that you see around achieving of those kinds of results in the supply chain? Why don't we think about what are the indicators that if everybody's reporting them regularly and updating reports we've got a pretty good idea what the trend is and we can conservatively estimate from there. And I like to refer to the LEED building standard, the energy efficiency standard for, for LEED, you know, from the very beginning and, you know, and, and what's the reality when the first LEED standard metric came out, you know, it's a, it was a spreadsheet and it had five sections and it sort of said, if you do this, this, and this, you get a, you can get a rank of, you know, zero to five, for and 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 you got and you've got so many points you got a bronze and if you got so many points you got a silver and if you got so many points you got a gold we can go more sophisticated than that but i think embrace that way of thinking and and, and get on with it for food and then energy and and building products and the thing i have to admit is when i saw the first version of a lead building standard I was the first to say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It's not right in so many ways. It's just can't be made to work. But you know what happened? It got everybody yeah. going in the right direction. Yeah. So I, it, it's another story. I'm saying Montreal Protocol and LEAD, we know how to do this. Let's do what we yeah, know. Yeah, right. no, you, you're right. And you make me think about that saying we can't let – the perfect or the desire to be perfect like it's often the enemy of the good right like you need to need to get going we do know how to get things moving in the right direction and uh, we're we're certainly inspired by that concept that you have about the lead the lead building standard because we could set a standard across a number of indicators in 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 regenerative agriculture or in a circular food system uh, and think about how to track that over time and, and just get moving in the right direction. You know, we've talked a little bit about the problems um, of the current system. And, and we've talked about this idea that we keep sort of doubling down on something that, that can't work. And you've exactly. talked about the yeah. Montreal that we do know in many cases what what we could do that could make a difference. But where do you see... Where do you see this evolving to next and who, you know, it's important to think about who benefits, who doesn't. And when we think about the average Guelph Wellington kind of citizen, whether they're rural or urban, in the yeah. future, how do you think they will interact with the carbon market? 
you know, such as it is now, or how could they interact with a carbon market that you think would be more um, uh, possible or feasible? I think, um, again, and part of the way to get, again, I, I don't believe there's a whole bunch of ill intent or, you know, corruption in the, I don't run into it very much. I think a whole bunch of brilliant, well-intended, committed people have got locked into a means instead of the ends. And so we're stuck on that model. So the first thing I have to say, and why I'm really excited about what you're, you're talking about in Guelph, is I think the right way to switch, the best, most efficient way to switch to a way that works is just to have one city and one community it doesn't matter how small you are. You don't have to be anyone to actually say, we're going to do it differently. And this is how we're going to get started. And when you pull it off, it'll, it'll take off. Everybody will see it. So you have to start with a community that's feeling um, confident enough to, to take that lead as opposed to wait for everybody else to tell them it's okay. I kind of get the feel from you guys that you fit into that appropriate category so that when and i'll be frank probably when you start what will happen is you'll introduce a a uh, a standard that um, ends up translating into every grocery store gets an aggregate branding you know bronze silver gold or so it's not product i think it's too complicated and too hard to get product yeah, specific no. yeah. but you can and you're probably going to start off with a community where grocery stores that are doing better you know units or franchises that are doing better not just grocery stores you know a and w's tims that are doing better um uh would be in a position to sell credits to households their consumers who want to voluntary offset their mm-hmm. own footprint. It's easy to see how to make a local mar- interactive market That's out of this. So I would love to be a part of that dialogue. Now I will also, as usual, contradict myself. As the system I'm talking about evolves, it is more and more likely that credit trades will be between the corporate yeah. entities who are providing the food, energy, and building products that are sold to the house- households. So I actually think this has to start with a design where you see that interaction between the individuals, the residents, the households, and the suppliers of the goods and services they use. But as it matures, I actually think the consumer as a credit buyer falls out and it's going to be largely a corporate um, a corporate interaction um, that is uh, overseen by government, which is the way it worked when we got the ozone depleting substances out of the refrigerant chemicals supply chain. So, and I don't, and I, I, I will disclose a bias here. Um, I know a bunch of uh, big food uh, companies and I, I respect them for this are now quite focused on how do I uh, trace and label my, 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 the, the products I'm delivering and get a, a verifiable pr- footprint on it with the goal of attracting a premium price to be paid by consumers. I'm an old lady and in my background, I can't explain it, but I call this, I call it this retail market penetration wall, whether it's organic, whether it was recyclable paper, whether it's FSR labeled lumber, 
I, I've never been able to forecast where the wall is, but when you introduce a superior product, fair trade, you know, green, whatever, to the consumer, there is a period of time when there is a population of consumers that will pay a premium for the superior product. That's equivalent yep. to buying the credit. But every precedent I know of, there's this wall you hit when all of the willingness to pay the premium just disappears. And it's very weird. I can never forecast where the wall is. It is at 5% market penetration or is it 35%? I've seen it over and over again. I still have no ability to tell you where that wall is. And that, that willingness to pay a premium for the superior product never goes down like on a, you know, on a, on a slope to the wall. It's there, it's there, it's there, it's gone. Yeah. So when we're building the system, I think it's really appropriate to launch it in its earliest iteration and stage on the assumption that we're going to be able to create an interactive market in which that end-use consumer is a player at the beginning, but it's going to evolve to something right. else. And just be ready for that. It, you know, it, it's it, it, Everything's fine and easy if we're ready for that. I wanted to ask yep. you a couple of questions in closing. Yep. And... Um, I want to I want to focus on two things. One is what you know what gives you hope and what keeps you going in your work. And then I'm 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 so curious about what's next for you. But but maybe you can answer <laughs> answer those. Everybody who knows me knows the uh, the the answer to your your last question, and you might decide to edit it out. Um, I uh, I um I'm optimistic we're going to get this right. But mm -hmm. only if people like the people you're dealing with and the people I get to deal with, including organizers, you know, probably the organization worldwide that I think is thinking about this stuff best through best and already doing the best I've performance I've seen is Alice Canada just down the road from yes. from Guelph. Yes. So 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 we've got key resources to work with. I should also say the thing to always remember is if you look at the global potential to mitigate uh, climate change through natural solutions, Canada rank has the second largest potential of all of the nations in the world after Russia. So we should be taking the lead. So I'm energized by the fact that I happen to be a Canadian living in the right place to take the lead in this thing. And I'm optimistic because we took the lead in the Montreal Protocol and got that right. Why can't we get it right again? There you go. So there's, you know, all the evidence says it's up to us. We know how to do it. Come on, get on with it. And that's, and that's, and I, I, the, for the whole world to make progress, we have to actually have the same lights go on that happened before when the Canadian, a small group of Canadians found the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol, quite similar to what we're trying to do, ended a more than 30-year impasse. Hmm. Why don't we do again what we this time, what we did that time? Nobody's better positioned to do it than us. Come on, let's get on with it. Terrific. Um, Terrific. And, uh, you know, uh, it, I want to hear what's next for you. What do you think? I'm a, a a person with a complicated life. I'm I'm 68 years old, and uh, along with my husband, due to circumstances uh, that had nothing to do with us, we became the parents of a baby about 15 years ago. So I still got a kid to get through university, and I'm pretty excited about that. 
Um, everyone who knows me knows that uh, I, uh, before I finally retire, there's one job I've never done. I left home when I was 15. I've worked my whole life. There's one job I've never done that I've always wanted to do. And I am for the life of me, I'm going to be a bartender in a legion, you know, that little yes. <laughs> hose who knows all of the, I, I, I have to get this done so I can free myself up to do that job before I pass. It's a great job. I grew up in, uh, in rural Ontario. And so, yeah, I know, I know the Legion lady and you'd be great, but I, but yeah, you've got, you've got bigger problems to solve <laughs> before we can let you go do that. I just want to end by saying, you know, you've really, but that's why we have to do it quickly yeah. so I can become. Okay. The Legion lady. Got it. Got it. Um, but I want to, say uh you know thank you we've been we've been uh talking to you and you've been giving us great advice and uh you're right we are a community where we're going to work on how do we you know how do we collect a a the right kind of best practices and standards into some kind of a matrix that that we can work with people on and similar to leads, you know, that sort of un you you talking to us about the leads idea has really unlocked our thinking in how to how to do that. And can I put a bug in your ear? Because I did this wrong. If you think of the spectrum between perfect measurement of carbon stocks and practices, what you have to do to get, you know, great progress, there's something in between that I call indicators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's let's not just let's not just think practice and standards and and outcomes they have to we have to be thinking those i swear if a uh, if a bunch of us gave ourselves the job of saying what are those indicators not just the practice don't prescribe practices what are the indicators of soil health increased wetland health if we work on it we'll get it right and that's where i that's the idea i got from the lead that was original lead you know, five section matrices. We don't want to prescribe practices. We've got a good idea of what practices might be tied to outcomes. If we, if a group like Guelph and Alice and the university set out to pick those indicators that go in that table, nobody's got a better shot at getting it right. And anything I can do to help, please. Thank you. And, 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 know. and as we do it, I think we're going to call it the Alden protocol. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today it was was a treat thanks for having me take care i'm barb schwarzenchuber executive director of the smart cities office and host of in conversation with our food future thanks for joining me and if you have ideas for a show or comments you can email us at foodfuture at guelph.ca. Until next time, take care and let's keep the conversation going on foodfuture.ca.